Welcome back, Graybeardians. I appreciate you joining me for another episode of Cybersecurity Graybeard, the podcast that helps students, early professionals, and retrainees learn, grow, and advance in the cybersecurity profession. Make sure to email questions, comments, and episode recommendations to cybergraybeard at gmail.com. You can also visit my website, cybergraybeard.com, and let me know what you think there. In this episode, I'm going to go ahead and talk about incident response plans, what they are, why they're important, and how to create one. NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has a really good document. It's entitled Computer Security Incident Handling Guide. It's special publication 800-61-REV2. I put a link for that document in my notes for the podcast. Go ahead and check it out in the notes. The document NIST has, it provides key data for incident response plans. I'm going to go ahead and talk about what those key components are and then how those components can go ahead and play an important role in cybersecurity incident response planning. The idea behind this document is really to help organizations know what to do when things go sideways. Incident response plans do have a relationship with a disaster recovery plan, but they are not the same document. Folks need to realize you have a DRP, disaster recovery plan, and an IRP. There are instances where each of these may be called on with or without the other. And I really think it's time for organizations to start thinking about declaring when a cybersecurity incident is a DR trigger. Historically, disasters dealt with physical issues, power outages, a storm, critical system down, hardware failure, etc. And nowadays, with the prevalence and the impact of many cyber attacks, it really is becoming necessary to realize, hey, you know, it is a disaster. If you have ransomware like Colonial Pipeline did or some of these food producers have recently, whether it was a power outage that took their systems down or a tornado or hurricane or a cyber attack, it shouldn't matter. And they need to go ahead and integrate the IRP with the DRP. Totally different conversation. I'm really here today to talk about the incident response plan. And I just wanted to point out that there is a relationship, but they are not the same. Incidents response plans are just that. They're documented procedures detailing how organizations react, respond, and recover from an incident. Incidents fall under a lot of different categories. There are all kinds of incidents. Incidents can come from the inside or they can come from the outside. I've personally worked on incidents that deal with denial of service attacks, brute force attacks, and ransomware attacks. And earlier in my career, I actually did a semblance of cybersecurity in the fact that I would go around the storage area networks and I would go ahead and remove files and data that wasn't supposed to be there. Basically, we're looking to clean up the hard drives and we're looking for large files. We found video files that didn't belong. And this led to investigations of employees when we found data that shouldn't be there. There was actually an individual that had violated the policy three times and was escorted out. Being an IT admin, it was difficult and stressful doing that work, but it's important and a lot of folks in the cybersecurity field will be tasked with tracking down communications and providing it to HR or legal or other organizational entities. There was another time where I actually worked for a company and I was responsible for tracking down emails coming from an external source because it was a former employee that was trying to basically get a revolution going and the COO came to me and said, Greybeard, I need you to go ahead and track down who's talking to this person and what they're saying. There's a lot of private information that we have access to in cybersecurity and in an incident response plan, it's important to list out what the rules are for handling the data and I'll talk about evidence handling a little bit later. Remember that not all incidents require acting on a response plan and actually 
a section of the this plan will guide organizations on how to respond to what. There's a lot of false positives out there, and there's a lot of issues. The individual workstation has ransomware, or one machine may be broadcasting information it's not supposed to. That's not necessarily a reason to declare a corporate-wide incident, and that's a part of the plan's purpose, is to let the organization know what to do and when to do it. So per the NIST special publication 861R2, they break out incident handling into four sections. It is section three in the document, 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, 3.4. I'm going to go ahead and break down each of those. The IRP may contain all of the components or a subset. It really depends on the size of the organization and the goal for creating the incident response plan and why it's being created in the first place. I recommend having at least a mention of each of these areas. However, in some cases it may not apply. The companies may be too small or they may be dealing with business or information in a different way. Keep in mind that IRPs are large documents. They can range anywhere from 20 pages to 100 and even more, just depending on the size of the company, the complexity of the business, and the purpose of the plan. When writing or reviewing an incident response plan, it's important to understand the purpose of the document. Identify why an organization wants an incident response plan and then create an outline around that thesis. After you create the outline, fill it in. Make sure to work with all the stakeholders in the company and make sure they have buy-in and agreement with the plan. An incident response plan is not going to do any good if portions of a company won't follow it. You need legal involved, you need HR involved, you may need marketing involved. And if those groups or a subset of those groups say, eh, we're not going to be a part of this, we don't want anything to do with it, it's not going to really do much other than become shelfware. The last thing before I get into these components is when writing it, it's about documentation, processes, procedures. What do people do? When do they do it? And how? This is not about technology. It's not writing about why is one technology better than another or this firewall brand is better than that firewall brand. The technology plays a backseat in the IRP. It's mentioned. However, the purpose of this document is helping organizations know what to do and when to do it. Item one in the NIST 861R2 special publication talks about preparation. Prepare to handle incidents. Have an inventory, acquire tools, and understand the tools. You already have some in all likelihood. What do you have? Why do you have them? What are you missing? Don't buy something to buy it. Find out what you need. When you decide on a tool, how will that tool help? Understand the assets. What are you protecting? What does your perimeter look like? What are the threat vectors? You're going to want to go ahead and create contact information. What's the documentation and notification procedures? Who meets? Who's a part of the incident's responding team? Where do they meet and when? What are you protecting against? What data is needed to identify certain incidents? This is where a SIM or a log aggregator is going to play a critical role in the preparation for handling the incident. Once you have the tools, the people, the processes, and you're able to handle an incident, you've prepared, now you want to prevent Without a successful attack, there's no incident response plan. If you have a solid EDR, endpoint detect and response solution, and you're able to nip all the ransomware in the bud and there's no malware or viruses, congratulations, that's wonderful. You've prevented an attack from being successful because I'll guarantee you, you're being attacked. And if you've prevented it, great, you don't need the IRP. What you're going to do in this section of the IRP is talk about what you're doing to prevent it boost your cyber defenses, and then you'll utilize this document as shelfware. You're not going to even need the IRP once your defenses are strong enough to prevent the attacks. 
When you're talking about prevention in there, write up the processes in the incident response plan that are going to help make the recipient organization, either your company or your customer, implement proper prevention procedures. Make sure that you have sections in prevention on network security, malware prevention, which is EDR, endpoint detect and respond, and also user awareness training. And it's not just user awareness for the end users, the people that are in general and administrative that need it. It's also for secure, for IT professionals and security professionals to receive the necessary training they use. But in the prevention, make sure to mention user awareness training. The second part is going to be detection and analysis. What are your attack vectors? Where are the attacks coming from? What are you doing internally? What are you doing externally? From the lateral or the direct, the DMZ or the internet? What are the insider threats? Do you have removable media processes? How do you handle that? Do you disable the USB port on laptops? Do you prevent people from bringing their own device? Those are threat vectors. Email, what's your email policy? What's your email tool? What are you doing for spam prevention? These are a part of the detection and analysis component, which is section two of the four from the NIST 861R2 special publication. Through the detection and analysis after you've identified attack, attack vectors, start talking about signs of an incident. How does an organization know that there's been an attack? Who makes the decision that an attack happened? What's the process for declaring an incident? Not all offenses or alerts are going to be a true incident. The IRP must differentiate. Again, as I said before, is an individual workstation being affected with a virus? Is that an offense? Is that an incident? Is that just a low-level tier three priority that we're going to handle one-on-one -on -one and we're going to clean up the machine and move on? Or do we need to have that escalated up to the CEO? Probably the former and not the latter, but that's the purpose of the IRP. You're going to want to understand and document false positive notifications. What does the organization do to reduce false positives and how are false positive notifications communicated around the organization or are they? I had a customer that was receiving roughly 500 offenses a day. An organization that size shouldn't have been receiving any more than five or eight a day. It was crazy how much data they had, all the false positives, and their incident response plan should have documented for them how to clean that up and make it a lot better and a lot easier to use. Then the last part of the detect and analysis component talks about noting the difference between a precursor, which is a sign that something could happen, or an indicator, which is showing that it might already have happened. Section 323, Table 3.1 on page 36, refers to common sources of precursors and indicators. Take a look. Check it out. It's on page 36 of 79. Again, I put the link to the artifact in my notes for this episode. The next component, incident analysis. This is where the IRP documents what an organization does when incidents occur. It's going to go ahead and document what is an offense or what is an alert that's worthy of declaring an incident. This is an area that also may tie into the disaster recovery plan, as I mentioned earlier in the episode. Is it so severe that there is a need to implement a disaster recovery plan, or is this just a cybersecurity incident and we're going to keep it in the cyber realm, share it with IT, share it with risks, share it with a CIO or CISO, or is it bigger than that? A fundamental role of SOC analysts is to perform this incident analysis create clear roles and responsibilities in this part of the incident response plan so people will pay attention and it will pay dividends in preventing and quickly determining true from false positives. 
Not all incidents are easy to spot, and a lot of times you're going to need to have a Tier 2 investigator or a Tier 3 or even a Tier 4 threat hunter engaging to really find out what's going on and determine. I told a story in my last episode about an organization that felt like they were having a denial of service attack, but they were also having DNS failures, and it was very hard to determine, was this an external threat coming in, or was it something where they were shooting themselves in the foot because of a network error with DNS configuration. That's where the incident analysis plays in and the IRP will give clear documentation and explanation as to who does what and when, when is it escalated, and how do we determine is it truly an incident or is this just some erroneous data or secondary mechanism that's happening and it's not truly an attack but there's other network or application interference. Incident documentation. Utilizing ServiceNow or Remedy or SOAR tools. SOAR is security orchestration, automation, and remediation. These are all products that allow you to have tickets and document what exactly is happening. In this section of the IRP, the author clearly explains what SOC analysts and other investigators are doing. What are the indicators of compromise that's coming in? What are you seeing? What files are there? Are they known and tied to attacks? Do they have hashes that align with other attacks? That is an indicator of compromise, and the analyst needs to track that and associate those IOCs with known attacks, and then you can quickly determine whether or not it's a true incident. When you're writing the IRP, you're going to need to talk about indicators of compromise. Maybe create a table about what are indicators of compromise and examples of them. I mentioned the hash. A PDF could be one. Or certain communications and botnets, IP addresses, could be an indicator of compromise. And the IRP should clearly lay that out. The next part of this section talks about incident prioritization. Unfortunately, there's times that you're going to have multiple incidents at once. Organizations need to determine a priority classification and then respond and balance resources accordingly. If you have ransomware and an denial of service attack, which one takes precedence? The IRP should clearly list that out. And in all truth, both of those would be priority one. Then you're going to have to figure out the scale of it. A better example would be, do you prioritize a brute force attack that's taking down your email system? Or do you prioritize an individual that has a virus on a machine? That would be a priority one and then a priority three and you would go with the priority one and in the IRP you need to list out how many priorities do you have is it four is it six is it three and then define what they are and explain how you know what it is and then when the SOC analyst is opening the ticket and they're doing the work they can create the priority based off of the incident response plan then the last part of this section talks about incident notification who is told about what and when what incidents stay within the security organization which are escalated when is risk involved What criteria trigger certain communications? How high up do you need to notify and when? The third area talks about containment, eradication, and recovery. Choose a containment strategy. List out the containment strategies in the incident response plan. Remediation might take some time. How should an organization contain the threat while working to remediate or eradicate it? What are the processes for evidence preservation? How long can systems remain inaccessible? What's the priority of systems? How long will remediation take? Should containment occur, or does it make sense to just shut down and eradicate? This part of the document needs to explain and lay out guidance for what the organization should be doing to contain, eradicate, and recover. Then the second piece of this has to do with evidence gathering and handling. Some incidents require data for prosecution, or civil reasons. Cybersecurity professionals need to understand our role may involve depositions or trials and the work we perform might come under scrutiny. For this reason, among others, we need to document what we're doing. 
The IRP will guide employees and help them know what to do and when to do it, which will help them if there are any legal ramifications. When the employee says, I did A, B, and C because the IRP said do A, B, and C, it helps protect analysts from anything that might come down the wire if there are questions about what they did or why they did it. When writing the IRP and working an incident, follow these rules and add this information. It's very important to know what's going on. In the incident, you want to have identifying information. What is the IP address, the MAC address, the host name, FQDN, etc. Document that. You're also going to want to have information in evidence retention around the name, title, phone number, email addresses of individuals involved in the incidents or owners of the systems that were impacted or participating in an attack. Note the time and date of the occurrences and actions and also the locations and then the actions and where the evidence resides. You're also going to want to identify the attacking hosts. Here, the IRP is going to provide information to the security professionals, the organization, and outside parties where the attack appears to come from. Keep in mind that because of proxies, VPNs, and other obfuscating technical tools, attribution is very difficult. It's a main reason why the federal government doesn't like to come out and say Russia did this or China did that. It's because it's quite easy to obfuscate your IP address or steal somebody else's IP address and makes it look like they're doing something that they're really not. When you do deal with your evidence, you need to keep that in mind. The last part of the evidence and retention has to do with documenting what it looks like. How does the organization know that full eradication occurred? What was the recovery mechanism? Did you restore from backup? If you did, how do we know the backup is clean? Did you rebuild it from scratch? Well, if you did, how do you know the gold image is clean? Somebody told me a story recently where they have 11-year-old vulnerabilities on their systems. The person says to me, how can I have an 11-year-old vulnerability when we just rebuilt this six months ago? And the answer is because their gold image is 11 years old or their gold image has software from 11 years ago or they're using software that hasn't been patched in 11 years and they need to get rid of it. Bottom line, you need to know what you're doing is fixing the problem, validate it, and that's what this eradication and recovery component plays into it. The fourth piece that NIST covers is post-incident activity. This is pretty straightforward. It's about lessons learned. Through the incident, what happened and when, why did it occur, what can an organization do differently, etc. And then you're going to go ahead and take that data and you're going to use it. If you go out and you play football and you can't get more than two yards because you keep going to the left, you not only need to do an evaluation, say, geez, why don't we go up the middle? Oh, great, you got three yards. What are you doing to implement that change? Did you tell the quarterback to change the play? How are you now going to implement and do what you learned? That is using collected incident data. And then evident retention, evidence retention. With the evidence, there are times where you're going to need to keep it for three or seven years for regulatory reasons. Other times you want to keep it indefinitely for legal reasons. In case there's going to be a lawsuit, whether it's civil or criminal, you want to be able to go back to it. The question is, who retains it? Is it owned by the legal organization? Does IT own it? Does security own it? This part of the incident response plan needs to talk about how long do you hold the evidence and who holds it? What does the security look like around that? Is it encrypted? Is it handled off-site? Is it allowed to be in the cloud, etc.? Your IRP needs to clear that up. You're going to want to have an incident handling checklist. And again, this is another really good reference in 861R2. Take a look at table 3-5 on page 51. There's a nice template for SOC analysts and other incident responders to follow. I encourage you to go take a look at that. And then recommendations. This is really important. This is a fun part of the IRP. This is where the authors can go in and talk about opportunities for the organization on how they can improve. After writing this and you see what your business is doing or what your customer is doing, what are they missing? Do they have enough tools? Do they have enough staff? 
Is the staff properly trained? Is the organization trained? What's security awareness training look like? How are your processes and procedures? Do they exist? Are they documented? Are they repeatable? So in this part of the document in the IRP, you go ahead and write up the recommendations. And this is really free reign for the author. Again, it's a fun place to write and it's a good area to help the business grow. Again, the special publication 861R2, it is a full guide on incident handling. I only talked here about section three that focuses on the IRP, but the entire document is solid. I've mentioned it a number of times here. There's the link. Take a look at it. I really encourage folks to review it no matter what your role is in cybersecurity. Even if you're a seller or if you're in product development or product management or you're a SOC analyst, whatever you do, take a look at this. Even if you're going to just do it from a cursory and get more detail and see a lot of the bullet points and tables that I'm not showing since it's just an audio podcast. But I really believe that whoever is in cyber, if you look at this, you're really going to take a step forward. As we see more and more attacks, we all need to know how to respond. And having a detailed IRP dramatically helps organization respond when the inevitable attacks come in. We are all cyber defenders. Now that you know a little bit about an incident response plan, when you're interviewing or when you're going to work or when you're looking for a job, ask about their incident response plan. If this is something that interests you, you might want to take a look at the GRC component, governance, risk, and compliance. That's the business unit that's usually involved with writing these and managing it and maintaining it. There's assessments that go against IRPs. Maybe you want to be a part of that. If you enjoy this, again, read it in detail and take it to work. Figure out how you can tie this into your daily life and really help the cybersecurity profession around this incident response plan. That's it for this week. I hope you found it of value. I think it's kind of interesting and a little bit of a shift from what I've talked about in the past. This is really good hands-on content, and I hope you take advantage of it. Next week, I'm going to conclude. It'll be the 10th and final episode. I will put up specials in the off-season where I'm speaking at conferences, or I may just plop in other episodes for the heck of it. But next week, we'll conclude season three with the 10th episode. I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about in that episode right now. I have three ideas I'm tossing around. One is on vulnerability management. The other is on privacy, which you all know I like, but you guys don't seem to care too much about it. And then the third one is an update on the latest cyber attacks in the news. This is where I'm leaning. There's been so much going on. I'm reading about them almost every day. I know not everybody reads the news that much. You're so busy with school or with work or studying for certifications. I'm thinking about pulling out you know, five, six, seven, eight different attacks that have happened recently, explain how they happened or what the impact of it was. If you have a preference, shoot me a note. Again, cybergraybeard at gmail.com. And I really appreciate you listening. Have a great week.